Hey everyone, Father Tony here, and Jonathan Stewart is joining me from the frigid uh, north of Montreal. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Father. <laughs> it's actually finally, uh, it, it, it's it's gotten into the, the double digits here. I guess actually I'm talking to Americans, so you don't know how Celsius nope. works, but it's getting warmer. It's getting warmer, <laughs> folks. Very exciting. Numbers are bigger. <laughs> yeah, no, the numbers are bigger. I oh, saw the sun it. today, so <laughs> I didn't. I didn't see my shadows. So that means we will get we will get summer by July. Yeah, and that's how it works. You know, the, yeah. they find some English speaking dude in in Montreal, and they say, if he yeah. sees his shadow. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, that's not important. What is important is Emanuel Swedenborg. And so to talk about Emanuel Swedenborg, we have Curtis Childs with us from the Swedenborg Foundation. Hello, Curtis. Hey, great Thanks to be here. Thanks for joining us again. Mm -hmm. So uh, we talked a little bit in the beginning uh, video portion about who Emanuel Swedenborg was and some of his uh, mystical experiences and writings and things. So, uh, let's talk a little bit more about what became of those writings. We talked uh, briefly in the intermission here about the various churches that sprang up around Swedenborg's works. Can you tell us about those? Yeah, sure I can. There, I mean, there was a couple... There were a couple organizations uh, that people made that, where they thought, we're going to take Swedenborg's theology and we're going to make a church mm -hmm. out of this thing. So there was, there's, a, there's three that I know of in the U.S. There's also at least one in Europe, um, uh, and I'll try to get all their names right. But in the U.S. you have the Swedenborgian or the convention church, um, which is Swedenborg.org is their website, and they have existed for a long time. Um, and there was actually an offshoot of that church that became the general church uh, of the New Jerusalem, which is there's probably about 1,000 to 2,000 convention church members, 5,000 general church members or so. And then there's another one that's called the Lord's New Church, um, and that I think it has 1,000 people in it. So we're not talking about big fish here. Mm -hmm. you know, these, are, these are small groups of people, and, and I, when I say church, I mean like, Church organizations that have mm -hmm. branches around the, the world. You can yeah you can look them you can look them up. Uh, yeah, Swedenborg.org is the convention church. Then newchurch.org is the general church. And you know they they try to have Sunday services, talk to people about Swedenborg, um, and to you know to anyone who will listen. And that's kind of what I'm doing. But but I'm working with a, a nonprofit that's uh, called the Swedenborg Foundation, mm -hmm. um, which has been a Swedenborgian organization for. I think close to 150 years now. Wow. Uh, yeah, and it started as a, just solely a translator and publisher of Swedenborg's books. Mm -hmm. Like the point of the foundation is we're going to keep these books in print and translate them every, every 50 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that was going okay, but the problem was nobody's reading these books. <laughs> you know, we, we were putting them out, some people, but you know, not, not as many. If, if you really see Swedenborg's books and you really, really love what they say, with, when anyone loves anything, they want more people to experience it. You, mm -hmm. you think this has value. So the Swedenborg Foundation decided in the 80s that they were going to start to publish um, collateral works or smaller works that would be kind of an intro to Swedenborg because Swedenborg is not easy to just pick up and read. Yeah. Um, it's long and it's, I mean, it's relatively confusing, relatively philosophical. Even even when it's really well translated, it can be very hard to follow. I've had people who are just finding Swedenborg say, you know, I had to read it and say it out loud at the same time and go over and over just to understand what he's saying. Um, and part of that's writing style, but also it's because he's trying to cover these these um, out-of-the-ordinary concepts. Mm -hmm. um, so, so you have that. And then you also, as I was mentioning before, you have... Um, 
he has these very Christian sounding statements. He has these very non-Christian sounding statements. He has all these. So it's hard to find somebody who isn't turned off by something he says. Mm -hmm. So, so it's hard to get into it. There's a, there's a barrier to entry initially, but as people who, who put the time into really delving into the, the content often find, oh, this is worth it. That once you start to speak his language, you see he's saying amazing things. So Swedenborg Foundation thought, we'll just publish these these little collateral books that'll kind of ease people in, like little exit ramps onto mm -hmm. the, the Swedenborg Highway. And then that was cool, but they, they were going places, but then the internet happened, mm -hmm. you know, and we thought, what what can we do to further get this out? And I, I started working for Swedenborg Foundation three years ago or so, um, and, and this was just when they started to make this this online push. And so you'll see now what I'm doing for Swedenborg Foundation is you know, Swedenborg initially was trying to, he was trying to ride the front edge of technology to get his message out. He moved to London where they had these these presses, you know, and where you could most easily get your your material out. He would, as I said before, send it to universities, try to get it into the hands of the movers and shakers of the day. So, you know, these days you try to do that on the web. So we're trying to get into YouTube and get into Facebook and just try to that way um, get get the conversation uh, to feature a little Swedenborg in it, so so those are uh, those are a couple. There's also the Swedenborg Society, who is uh, a similar organization. I think they're based out of London. They're they're in Europe. Um, who also publishes books, but there, there's a relationship between the two now. We carry some of their books, and I think vice versa. So there's a few Swedenborgian organizations, but then there's yeah, as I said before, there's plenty of individuals. You, you guys know the band Blondie, uh, the the bass player from that recently wrote a biography of of Swedenborg because he had found him and. And got into them. Uh, you, you know, you'll find all kinds of, all kinds of connections there. And like uh, Raymond Moody, when he wrote um, Life After Life, kind of kicking off the the near death experience book phenomenon, mm -hmm. he had like six pages on Swedenborg in there because he saw parallels. So it's not like the the Swedenborgian organizations are the only way people are finding his material. But but um, I'd say they're a, a chunk of it, and the whole the whole game is still pretty small at this point. Yeah, we yeah. as as uh, as Gnostics, we understand the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Feel each uh, other's pain. Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, uh, Curtis. Um, just to clarify, you don't have to join a, a Swedenborgian church or organization to benefit from his his works. In, in your opinion, if you're a Christian, a mystic, someone who's spiritual, uh, would you recommend that they they search out Swedenborg's books and ideas? Or like you, you don't have to belong to an organization to benefit from him and his insights. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Uh, I think you can benefit from Swedenborg within your own tradition. You can benefit from Swedenborg if you have no tradition. And the funny thing is, even Swedenborg doesn't say you have to read Swedenborg <laughs> to do well. That, that part, one of the things he was getting in trouble for saying uh, was that. The, actually, the path to heaven is to live rightly by what you really believe is true, even if, regardless of how accurate it is. If you if you think you're doing the right thing, and you you live by the principles that that you believe are higher, um, that's the path. So Swedenborg can be a great augment to anyone, but it's not a make or break thing. And and within the people who are reading Swedenborg, you don't have to be part of an organization. I think. Uh, there, it can be nice to have community for somebody to, for you to say to somebody, wait, what does this mean? Or if you get excited, you want to say, look, I found this thing. Because Swedenborg, we're talking about like 27 volumes just of theological material. And 
you I'm still I mean I've been reading them a lot. I'm still finding things in there that I've never seen before. And you want to tell somebody, like, look at did you can you believe you said this? This me now we get to when we have those aha moments, we get to put them into our show, which yeah. is great. Um, but so but no, I I, I don't think you I don't think you have to be solely a Swedenborgian or you, you don't have to be part of an organization to get something out of it. And I think that's why you see these, these lone individuals, uh, you're able to have, read Swedenborg and have it influence your art or your architecture or, you know, uh, the, your contribution to um, societal things like how people with disabilities are treated. Uh, I think many people find just dabbling in Swedenborg is enough and in our audience we have that whole spectrum you have people who find it and say wow this is this is the coolest thing i've ever seen this is all i want to eat anymore and you have other people who just drop in every once in a while and you're and they think oh yeah that when he says that it's kind of like this and another reason why swedenborg works well with other traditions is that you'll find common a lot of commonalities uh for example i mentioned raymond moody and near-death experiences you'll find those experiences in Swedenborg describing the same kind of thing. But even, even beyond that, you'll have, there was a guy named uh, D.T. Suzuki, and he is sort of credited with bringing Zen Buddhism in from Japan to the West. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this book that was called Swedenborg, Buddha of the North, or that's the, the translation. His title, I think, was Swedenborg Guru or something like that. Um, and because he saw... A lot of parallels with um, Eastern thought in Swedenborg's work. So there is a lot there to kind of reinforce and come together on. So I, I think, you know, if you want to read a page or you want to read all the books, you, you could get something out of it. Hmm. Did Swedenborg have any um, any notable influences? Uh, <clears throat> so excuse me, that. Uh, that kind of informed his mystical experiences, or did it all pretty much spring directly from, you know, the the inspiration that sure. he received? Yeah, I mean, he was certainly he grew up immersed in his Christian culture. His mm-hmm. father was a bishop. Um, he was a very devout Christian, you know, prior to these experiences. So he, he certainly spoke of that language and had had his head full of those concepts. Um, and while he was having his spiritual experiences, he was constantly studying the the Bible, and, and mm-hmm. that was bringing inspiration. As far as, um, but I will say that it doesn't r- seem like, or he doesn't report having been influenced by heavily by previous Christian thinkers. Like his his um, treatise is not. I read this guy, and then I contemplated on it, and now I want to add to it here. He's he's describing experiences and theology that he says he's getting directly um, from heaven through the word. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so so I, he never. Some people will argue that there's influence from that from people that that came before him, and he will. I mean, he'll certainly reference. Um, you know. Aristotle, Plato, those kind of all that stuff is is loaded into his head, and he will reference historical uh, concepts from the Christian Church. Um, so it's it's sort of yes and no. Like he would, he was getting what he felt like was this input on this is how life is. So that was his sort of final authority on it. But wherever it coincided with that stuff, he would he would mention it um, to try to to try to bring credibility and commonality. So so not in the sense of like. He, he he reported reading you know, a Christian thinker and then adding on to that, but but there there was probably influence there. It's not like 
his spiritual experiences came in, wiped his mind clean, and then he just started automatic writing. You know, he was very much, he had his brain and his experiences. Um, and he actually, as I said in the intro, again, he was looking back on his scientific career. Uh, the things he learned about anatomy, the things that he learned about how the world works, that was all necessary foundation or else he wouldn't have been able to understand the things he was getting through his experiences. So I would imagine a lot of the theology he had allowed him to understand those experiences as well. So mm -hmm. he certainly wasn't, yeah, it wasn't like he was operating in some kind of mental vacuum. That's, he said that it was necessary for him to go through all this learning earlier in life to, in order to prep him to be the right kind of vessel to, to do this. And that, that, I mean, everything, every question about something Swedenborgian leads me to a, another mm -hmm. 20 minutes I could spend, but it just gets a little bit into the importance of structure and that you can't, in, in his worldview, you couldn't just have somebody's mind suddenly fill up with the truth. It would have to come about the way things are actually learned. You'd have to go from part to part mm -hmm. and be ready to accept things. It's not just like a here's everything you have to have built the foundation just like with physical things you got to build the foundation so but that that you know we can get into that if we want but you probably have more interesting questions <laughs> well that actually often comes up in conversations about uh the english mystic john d uh, where you know his revelation came in the form of of codes and and uh you know secret ciphers and things and that because that's what he did that's what he studied he was a cryptographer and and, uh, and a polymath and so his revelation came through in the way that he could best process it for himself so you know there's there's kind of a common theme that happens throughout uh throughout the history of revelations that you know you you kind of receive it in the way that you can understand it yeah absolutely and that, that we're all that's why we bother being us, that, that we, can, <laughs> we, we all is, can understand the truth in a slightly different way. And Swedenborg says, actually, that's what we all contribute to the human race, that we can um, feel love and understand truth in a, in a way that nobody else quite can, and that, that our sort of destiny, if we embrace it, is to use that to serve the human race in a way that, that, that completes... Uh, completes a part of the puzzle that would, would be vacant without us. If that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of his teachings and experiences and how they might be different from, you know, some of the other uh, Christian insights going on at the time or some of what we think of as Christian theology now? Like, well, what does Swedenborg teach about angels? And what sure. were some of his experiences with angels? Yeah, and this is something we often get hammered on because <laughs> Swedenborg says that um, angels are not a separately created race. Um, he also says angels have gender. Um, he, uh, angel to him is just a term for people who have gone through this sort of sorting process in the afterlife and have sort of advanced in spiritual growth enough that that they are a better channel for God's love, God's wisdom. So essentially, we all have the potential to become angels. And actually, we are doing that through this life as we make choices. You know, every time that you decide to put away what's harmful and embrace what's loving, you're, you're restructuring, like talking about this structuring, you're restructuring your mind and your spirit to, to become, to open up in an angelic way. So he would, he says that after death, 
we all have a chance to be, we'll go into a sort of an initial uh, state, because to, to him, it's hard to explain anything without explaining everything. To him, um, in the spiritual world, place and state of mind are the same thing. Um, that, that actually distance is not caused by just uh, an amount of physical space between people. It's you're closer to people that you have a similar mind to and you're farther people from people that you have a dissimilar mind to. Um, and that that's we use that actually he says that that knowledge of that creeps into our language that we say like you seem distant if you're thinking about something that 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 you, that has nothing to do with the people you are around mm-hmm. or or we're really far apart on this issue those kinds of things so we initially he says we end up in this this state of mind or place that he called the world of spirits where it's sort of like a a sorting station where uh, pretense is slowly stripped away, and and who we really are, or who we would be if if we thought we could get away with it, uh, <laughs> comes out. You know, and we we kind of get to make our choice there. Do you want to embrace what's good, or do you want to embrace what's evil? And then once we get down to the core of it, we kind of if if what we truly love deep down is is um, helping others, thinking about happiness for for others and how we can do that, then we put away the negative stuff that's in us. Or if we find that our deepest love is really ourself and, and our own joy at the expense of others, then we put away everything good. And once we've kind of become consistent, self-consistent, then you follow that. And people who have become self-consistently good, um, they uh, go to heaven. Like they, they gravitate toward heaven and that is when, once you make it that far in the process, Swedenborg would call you an angel. But it's not as simple as that because he describes several different phases. He, and, he's, and he sometimes describes them with different words, uh, which is a little bit confusing. He'll talk about um, good spirits, angelic spirits, and angels, but he'll also talk about natural angels, spiritual angels, celestial angels. It's all part of a process he says that there's different there's three levels in the human minds and as they open as if if we allow god into those levels of us we ascend higher and higher because state of mind and place are the same thing and as you move up you become more and more of actually an angel so he says that's how angels get made it's it's us choosing to be nice and making that choice consistently and and approaching God. I mean, and this is, you know, acknowledging our relationship with God and embracing that and living by the precepts that that teaches. So that's that's the the way angels are made, uh, according to Swedenborg, which some people don't like that. They think they, they like the idea of angels are something different. Um, so, and that's fine. And we, we try to let, if people want to come on the show and voice uh, a different opinion, we try to let them do that as much as possible because... As Swedenborg says, actually, um, doctrine is secondary to love. That if you are, if you're both trying to do what's right, you're actually in the same church. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if your your doctrine is different, he actually, okay, we can talk about that too if you want. But I want to let you guys get a <laughs> a word in as edgewise. No, no, that's why you're here. <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, I can feel my my motor start to go, and I'm yeah. like, oh yeah, now I got to talk about this. <laughs> church, the word church for Swedenborg, 
it, it, it's another danger of just opening up Swedenborg and starting to read is that you're going to think he's saying things he's not really saying because mm. he takes words that we have common definitions for and he uses them in, in different ways. Mm. For example, church, to him, uh, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within you. It's a state of mind and of heart. The church is the part of you that God can connect with. Everything that's good and true within you is this church. It, that's the church in an individual. The larger church is made up of all the individuals who have that church within them, you know? But, um, but so you can have two individuals who have very different beliefs about life, but they both pl have pri this driving love or a priority on what they believe is the right thing and Swedenborg says those people are actually in a church together, even if they don't realize it, um, because because ideas are secondary. He says that the will or the feelings really, um, that's what drives us, that we might mm -hmm. think we're driven by our ideas, but it's really what we love that, that's primary. And in a pinch, um, that's what we go with. So that that would lead us into his discussion that he discusses this progression of churches through human history mm. and when he's when he's talking about that he's really talking about sort of human beings version 1.0 version 2.0 version 3.0 that there we've gone through these different sorts of mindsets uh it, because as he tells it we had there was an initial sort of um you know primordial really good state of the human race where people were where the default was they were loving and and also they would all have open communication with with heaven uh, and with god but then that got messed up which is the fall with adam and eve mm -hmm. that is he says that story is symbolically describing that um and then there had to be a new way to uh to um relate to god so god did some some reconfiguring and so you progress in in churches, so church is both an internal state. It's a it's a gathering of people, but it's also sort of a, a the marker points for how the human race evolves. And so this is this probably doesn't this is probably all a lot. And if you so if you want to know more about it, you can go watch our show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you mentioned there's a, a kind of a um, complicated cosmology, I guess you'd say, with you know, various types of angels mm -hmm. and things. What, what other kinds of spiritual beings did he encounter? Sure. Uh, he, he says that they, they're all ex-people. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody that he encountered, he, I mean, he would encounter um, creatures and, and appearances. The, the spiritual world, as he describes it, is full of appearances. So you could, you could see what looked like a being or a creature that wasn't necessarily a a conscious entity, but was more a representation of things of things in people's hearts and minds. But as far as the the the, the conscious beings, uh, there was there were all ex people. Um, you had those angels I described. You had spirits who were people who are still being sorted out. And then he describes just as um, detailed uh, groupings of evil spirits. So this would be people who are love what's evil and don't want to give it up. Uh, Swedenborg says everyone's allowed to pursue their own joy, what what they love to do. But the problem is, um, the more you pursue evil, evil has side effects. Mm. Um, one is that people don't want you around <laughs> because you don't want to be harmed. And if people love harming people, so there's that, and also, and also there's a side effect of, as I said, in the spiritual world, people with similar minds are drawn together. So. 
if you're a person that's a nightmare to be around, you're going to be around other people like you. You know, so you kind of get that in there. So for, he would had a, he had a lot of experience with these, what he called evil spirits. Um, and he goes into a lot of detail about the different kinds. I mean, he describes, he says there are Satans and demons. He uses the, those terms in the plural. Um, and Satans were evil spirits who they're primarily immersed in falsity. Um, and and demons were evil spirits who were primarily immersed in evil. So a Satan had a distorted understanding of the world, and a demon had um, corrupt desires, you know, wanting to do bad things. Um, and he, within that, there was all kinds of subcategories. He talks about um, things he calls sirens. He talks about the Nephilim. Um, he goes into all kinds of detail. He says that he says that the kinds of people, angels spirits, demons, if you know it right, you can subdivide them all into genre and species, just like animals are here, mm. that, that, that everything is, everything does fall into categories. Every individual is unique, but there's kind of this mirroring of everything. So the spiritual world and the physical world are actually images of each other. So when we look out and we see nature, how it interacts the ecosystems, we're actually being shown a physical representation of the way the spiritual world is, but the players there are all these people um, and the ideas and, and beliefs that, that flow through them. So you can go in there and especially if you read his Journal of Spiritual Experiences, the unpublished, uh, you can find all kinds of descriptions of different kinds of beings. Um, he, he talks about people he had known and what became of them. He talks about people who had heard of the kind of work he's doing and how they came after him. He goes and visits these different societies and sees the the state of the people there and, and what what kind of things they believe and how their beliefs actually affect their surroundings. Mm. He says that 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 uh yeah, what what's because the spiritual world is the the mental world. Mm -hmm. I mean that we we're spirits living in bodies right now. So the spiritual part of us is, is already going, and, and in the mind, you know, everything is is sort of centered around your thoughts and feelings. So in the spiritual world, um, you get representation of you, when you're approaching a community of people, if you know how to read it, by what kinds of um, animals, plants, uh, even what kinds of mountains and buildings are around them, you can tell what kind of people they are because there's a representation there. Um, so, so those are a few thoughts on, on the categories. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you have any examples of, um, of some of the groups of people that he encountered and, and uh, spiritual sure. representations of them? That's interesting sure. to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in, in, uh, in heaven, he did this kind of tour. I talked about these different churches, these mm -hmm. different uh, historical groups of people. And he went and visited um, people from each of these eras. Uh, he called them the Golden Age, uh, the Silver Age. And so on. And he, in the in the golden age, he talked about visiting communities of people, and they lived really simply, and they had tents, um, and it was a very like close to the earth sort of lifestyle. And that that was that was from back when there was this really immediate connection. But then in the sort of the church after that, we just did an episode that was called Three Conversations with Angels," where we go into these three different uh, uh, scenes that he was a part of, and. And we relate things there. And, and an interesting one there with the, the Silver Ages, he said that there was um, this temple that he called uh, the Temple of Wisdom. 
and he was in this this um, garden with these people who were all walking around, and this angel was talking to him and saying, there's a temple here, but you can't see it unless you believe that what you know is is barely anything compared to all that there is to know. It is essentially like you had to have humility to be able to perceive that this mm-hmm. temple was even there. And that, that comes up a lot, actually. He, he talks about you know, evil spirits who are like, if we could just get into heaven, then we would, then we would be happy. And they're taken up there and they don't see anything. Mm. Because, because if you're not open to it, you can't perceive it. But for, the other symbolism, um, he, he was talking about people will appear differently from afar. Like he'll see some people, when he's approaching them, they, they look like they're infants. And then when he gets up close, they look like adults. They appeared like infants because of the innocence that they live in. Um, he uh, will often see people at a distance. It seems like they're in vehicles, chariots, or that. You know, back in his day, there wasn't cars. It, it mm. could be there are cars there now. But the vehicles are a symbol of the kind of understanding that mm. they have. And then that gets into correspondences, which is his um one of i think his most interesting and hardest to understand ideas which is basically that everything in both worlds is a symbol of deeper realities so in the physical world he says water is a, is a cor- corresponds with truth and what that means is the role that water plays in the physical world truth plays in the spiritual world mm-hmm. and you think about how we are 70% or give or take water we need to we need to be consuming water on a regular basis or we die we need to wash things with water he says the truth on a spiritual level has these cleansing properties these sustaining properties he says that food corresponds to goodness so that the kind of food or 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 love so the kind of food that we eat it's not that that it's not that and this is the confusing that, that that sometimes it's hard to communicate to our audience it doesn't mean that if you eat a certain kind of food, you'll be more spiritual. Mm. It just means that it's a it's a representation you can learn from. That l- study the role that food plays, and you can learn the role that love plays. We actually did a show recently called Spiritual Fermentation, and this we did the whole show about how the chemical process of fermentation is a physical replica of the spiritual process of re- regeneration that we need to go through, or spiritual growth that we need to go through. And this even down to the yeast is a symbol of evil and falsity, um, and the, the um, alcohol that's produced is a symbol of love, and the way that initially in the first phase of fermentation you have uh, oxygen in there so the yeast multiplies, and that's just like how when we begin to apply truth, because um, breath or lungs are another series a symbol for truth when we begin to try to apply the truth to our lives initially it seems like things get worse it seems like there's more uh, falsity and problems in our lives because that gets kicked up and you see that in fermentation then you move to the second stage which is when you have a change of will anyway watch our episode on that to anyone who's listening but that's the kind of symbolism that he gets into in hell he'll say that there will be things that appear around hellish societies uh, snakes, um, menacing creatures, sometimes composite creatures like these big dogs, a lot of like the kind of stuff you would see in Greek and Roman mythology, and that, that all of that is a symbol of the, the, the persuasions and delusions in, in these people. He says that the, the passion for evil looks like a little coal fire uh, at times, or, or like black smog. Um, he, he talks about 
smoke coming out of an evil spirit's mouth, which is a symbol. He talks about um, all kinds of bodily disfiguration, that, that evil, evil spirits see each other norm, as normal. And he says God lets them do that because that'll give them at least as happy a life as they can have. But if you see them from the light of heaven and see how, because they're, they're, the way they think about other people and the way that they, what they care about is so poisoned, they look terrifying. They look like, you know, creatures out of fantasy, like um, skeletons or... Um, we, zombies, that kind of thing. They look scary, and there's, but everything about their appearance means something. Like some appear without their nose, uh, and that the nose corresponds to perception. Hmm. Because, and, okay, so I'm just going to lay it on you guys as thick as I can here. <laughs> yeah, um, because, because perception is the spiritual ability to understand what a situation like is this really good or bad? What is this? What kind of person is this? That corresponds to the physical ability to smell things. If if we want to really know is this food good or bad, you got to try to smell it. You know, if you can't see it. So he says that 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 discernment uh, of what's what's good or bad is a, a, a spiritual ability that corresponds to smell. So if your ability to know what good or bad is is completely destroyed, which he says it is when you see evil as good, when you've justified things that harm other people and say, this is okay, it's actually fine for me to do this. You know, and you'll see this, you know, anybody who gets into a position of power, uh, commits atrocities, they have some reason. They think, well, you know, I'm doing something that's that's actually good because of X, Y, Z. If you've destroyed that within yourself, when somebody sees you in the light of heaven, you don't have a nose mm-hmm. because you don't have that ability to tell what's good and evil. And that applies to everything in the, the body. It all corresponds in the kinds of things that, that appear around you. The vegetation is sparse and harsh, which symbolizes there's very little actually living and spiritual growing in your mind. You could go on and on um, about that. But those are a few examples of, of the kinds of things that, that appear in the spiritual world. Mm. Very interesting. Mm. Do other people have experiences similar to Swedenborg's, or is this kind of unique to him? Other people do. I mean, I think that that's that's one of the coolest things about Swedenborg is that he doesn't seem to exist in a vacuum, that it's not like he's describing a world that nobody else comes across. And I'll I'll say a few examples of why I I believe that's true. Um, This this correspondence stuff that I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. this also applies to dreams. Uh, and, and it's some of the symbolism that people have theorized about dreams, Jung and those kind of guys. It's the same as Swedenborg. But also people who have experiences um, will will see similar things. For example, we did a show called What God Looks Like, which is an audacious title for a show. <laughs> but we're trying to get traffic, you know. Yeah, right. Um, and we we went into, it's not a simple answer, spoiler, uh, that, that you can see God in a number of different ways. And we talked about uh, God as a human. This would be Jesus Christ. We talked about the the how he, Swedenborg says the whole created universe is a mirror of God. That you can learn things about God from everything because it's not not that everything is God. He's not a pantheist, but he says everything bears sort of the, the stamp of the Maker. You can learn things about God. But also he says that God, a, a correspondence is that God is in the spiritual world. God is there what the sun is here, meaning mm-hmm. all life on earth depends on the sun. You know, so 
you can actually see an image of God as a son in the spiritual world. However, he had this this weird um, nuance on that where he said that through the right eye, God looks like a sun, but through the left eye, God looks like a moon surrounded by little moonlets. Hmm. So that's, that's a weird thing. And that, that's correspondence because the right eye has to do with love, the left eye has to do with truth, and the moon is like faith because when when you're just kind of running on faith and you don't feel it, you know, the sun is gone, but you're still seeing its light. Anyway, <laughs> but we, we went to neardeath.com, which is this website where people record their near-death experiences, and there was a guy who said he had this experience of seeing God, and when he saw God, through the right eye, it was like a sun, mm-hmm. um, and through the left eye, it was like a moon, um, with little, with like little planets around it, hmm. and I was like, "Wow, that's really, really similar." And then I kept reading, and he was like, "Actually, I realized they weren't planets; they were little moons around it." So it was like exact, <laughs> and I was freaking out finding that because was, this is exact. So there's a chance that guy read Swedenborg mm-hmm. and posted that there, but like I said, nobody knows who Swedenborg is. <laughs> and also, why would you ever do that? Why would you? It's not like saying I saw God as a sun and a moon through different eyes is going to get everyone saying like, wow, you're really awesome. That's a really cool. <laughs> you know, it's a weird way to see God. And um, and why would you publish that anonymously on a near-death experience? So that's not the only one. I mean, um, you read any of the major near-death experience stories, you'll see commonalities. Howard Storm's description of hell is very similar to Swedenborg's. As I said before, Raymond Moody said that um, that, uh, that Swedenborg had such similarities that he, he put him in his first book. And, um, and uh, it's not just near-death experiences. Uh, you'll get all kinds of people. People will always say to me on the channel, "Have you heard of uh, Alan Kardec?" Or because he says a similar thing. So there, there's a lot of crossover. And um, I also just talk to regular people mm-hmm. that that have had experiences like this, where where they'll have something that that occurs to them, and it's it's very similar. And there's a lot of, I mean, the the basic features of of spiritual communication that Swedenborg talked about, sort of a communication through thoughts rather than than verbally that that comes up very very common uh in a lot of experiences so there's some things that i've only heard in swedenborg that i haven't heard elsewhere uh but there's a lot of things that you find in many traditions um and even even similarities in uh like the reports of paul you know mm-hmm. uh so so there there there's a it's not like he he's unique but he's not that unique you know uh what the what did Swedenborg recommend for spiritual practices, you know, to, to get closer to God, to become a better person? Yeah, it's funny because um, I, get, I get that question so much. How do you, how do, a lot of people want to know, how do you start having experiences like Swedenborg? And it's funny because he wrote so much and he never writes about inducing spiritual experiences. Mm. For him, like, you take it or leave it, you don't need to have spiritual experiences to be on the path, what you do is, there's two major things, I would say. There's there's repentance and reformation, which I'll just lump into one category. This is the process of, in, in short version, when something, when an impulse to do something that you know is not good to do comes to you, you say, you know, because that's against God, I'm, I'm not going to do that. 
that that's the step that you do. And by doing that in little ways, you move on that path. The other major thing is, he says, participate in the world and work on cultivating a love for what you do to serve other people. He says that he talked about exercising charity towards the human race and that actually one of the most effective ways you do that is doing your job well, meaning how loving loving being of use to other people. And he actually says that heaven, like the foundational pleasure of heaven is the joy in knowing you're helping people. And, and, and here you might think of giving yourself to a cause. You think about people who really believe in a cause, the kind of joy they get out of that. That is an essence or an element of heavenly joy in that. So the more that you can focus on what you're doing and focus on not doing it for honor, reputation, and gain. For example, so I host that web show and we were talking about, oh yeah, we got to 30,000 subscribers. If I'm, if I'm doing that web show and, and that's what's exciting to me is prestige, that's, that's not really helping me. What, what I need to work on is trying to do that show as best as I possibly can. And the reason what I'm, the, the, my focus in doing it is thinking about the good it's doing in people's lives. The, the, they're getting these concepts. These concepts are helping them. That's, that's the angelic mindset. So the more that I can try to work towards that, um, the better I can become. So those are a couple of things, but obviously the pursuit of, of truth, you know, studying your religious precepts and working to live by those more and more is, is, is really helpful and, and is, a, is a path. There's a lot of things you can do, but those are sort of the, the big things. It, he, it's funny because he, he goes all you know, into the, the highs of heaven, the depths of hell, writes all this fascinating, strange stuff, and come back, comes back and just says, live your regular life, but, but do it for good reasons. You know, uh, so so that's kind of his his push, and he says that as we do that, as we work, we actually can change what we what we love on a deeper level, and that is a change of the spirit, and that's opening us up to to this mindset of heaven that then comes alive in us a little bit in this life, but much more in the next life. You know, it's like it's like putting the work in here, and then everything just gets gets much better there, and you can talk and think and and serve and love in ways that that you can barely even fathom here so mm-hmm. so those that, that's some of the the path but but also he doesn't he doesn't like have one book that's like here's what you do i mean he he sort of does but it's hard to kind of tease out simple day-to-day steps from him so that's part of what we're trying to do is is distill it into practical how do i do this for example i we're having our hundredth episode special coming up in in next month on the ninth uh, of may and uh, that show we're going to call three simple ways to love everyone which is kind of a cheeky title but (laughs) it is that we're going to look at some practical um ways that swedenborg says here's how the angelic mindset would think about other people and so we're going to try to how can we do that in our on our own and so there are some some specifics there that, that aren't necessarily intuitive. Um, so we're going to try to lay those out for people. Um, so it, it, it should be good. Yeah, that sounds interesting. It's, uh, it sounds like something that um, we've talked about on occasion here. Is that it's, um, it isn't necessarily one specific practice that you do, but it's, it's more of a series of individual decisions that you make over and over again. That, Agreed. Yeah. yeah. That's well said. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. So... Um, 
I've got a whole bunch of stuff, and we're running out of time. Uh, <laughs> well, what about the problem of evil? What, is, uh, what does Swedenborg say on, on suffering and why there's sure. evil in the world? Sure. I'm not going to keep plugging my program, but <laughs> we did. We did. I just this will be hopefully the second to last one. Uh, we did a program called "Why Bad Things Happen," where we try to get into that. Uh, the problem of evil is, in some ways, it's it's similar to a lot of uh, apologetics. In some ways, it's different. Uh, in order for human consciousness to exist, we sort of think there's people, and then there's free will, right? That God kind of gave people free will as like a a layer on top. He, for, consciousness is freedom. You couldn't be a being that existed and felt like it was living autonomously without freedom. That the freedom is the act of, of consciousness. So there has to be freedom, and that freedom has to be actual. Meaning you, you have to, in order for, for God to accomplish God's purpose in the universe, which is to create a heaven of people in, that are in a loving relationship with God, um, we have to be, love cannot be compelled. So we have to willingly choose God, or else God is just really loving himself because he's created these beings and forcing them to be with him. So we have to have the choice to accept what comes from God or to reject it. And evil is just the opposite of what comes from God. So when we reject God, it's just like darkness, right? If you, if you block out all the light, you're in darkness. So there's, that's a beginning of sort of metaphysically why is the potential for evil exists. As far as why, you know, I'm living a life in the world and bad things are happening to me, there's an all-powerful, all-loving God, why does this happen? I think that comes down to we live in a communal system, meaning there's all of us here and we can all affect each other. So as we make bad decisions, um, that those have real consequences on people. So not only in the physical world, but in the spiritual world, that a lot of, because so many people are choosing evil in the spiritual world, that trickles down and influences us here and causes not only us to think bad thoughts, but even things like natural disasters, that's triggered by evil. Um, but evil is only allowed when ultimately in the end good will come out of it that that we will actually be better off because these things happened which seems like callous when you think about how hard life can be and, and the kinds of heartbreaking things that happen but i'm talking about like long long run mm -hmm. you know um and the reason is we he, swedenborg goes into all these specifics his book divine providence he just lays it out um, chapter by chapter. Here's why wars are allowed. Here's why um, people are allowed to, to, to harm each other. And I'll try to give you a few of them. Um, evils, he says, evils have to be seen before they can be removed. Meaning, if there's evil in, in your heart, unless you actually, unless it comes to the surface and you see, are able to see it, you could never reject it and there, thereby get it out of yourself and, and be freed from it before it destroyed you. So, and the same is true with the human race on a larger level. And you kind of see this when something terrible happens, there's this counter reaction from people who put policies in place and, and all this stuff to try to make sure that can never happen again. Don't we always point back to 
like the most atrocious acts in history to say, well, we don't want that to happen, so we're going to do this. Um, he says, so that's one thing. Another thing is um, that uh, on our own personal level, uh, you know, we have to be given that same choice, that we have to, sometimes we have to hit bottom before we will uh, be willing to reject something. So people who are allowed to commit evil so that they can eventually um, they can eventually say, oh, I don't want this thing to be a part of it. Also, in a less um, essential sense, we wouldn't, we, you can't know true happiness unless you know some unhappiness, that you think things can only be truly known by their opposite. So through an experience without peace, we then get to understand heavenly peace. I was once thinking of that when I was, I was just coming out, I was in college um, in a class and I was just coming out into the parking lot to get into my car. And I just had this thought hit me suddenly of, I was just kind of wrapped up in, um, oh, you know, how'd that class go? Do people think I'm cool? All that hmm. stuff. But I suddenly was sitting in that parking lot and I was looking around and I, it, was, it was at night, it was probably like nine at night. And I was like, there's peace here, meaning there's not a war here. There's not, uh, nobody's shelling us. I don't have to worry about air raids. I don't have to worry about bombings. Um, but I would never, but I don't really have a clear sense of that. But if I had come from a war zone, I would feel totally different in that parking mm -hmm. lot. Which I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna say that's a valid argument for the whole problem of evil, but, but that's just a piece of it, you know? And the, um, so there, there's more, I mean, there's a, he, he goes on about, um, that anyway, I, I feel like I've I've said a few of them. Uh, I I don't want to keep rolling on that because you said you had a few questions. But d definitely his book Divine Providence, which you can download all of his books for free at Swedenborg.com um, mm -hmm. as eBooks or PDFs. Re read more of that, and he'll give you some more on that. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's that leads into my my last question here. If somebody is looking to start on this path. Um, what's, what's the best kind of intro text or uh, video or mm -hmm. where would you send somebody who's just, just starting out? Sure. I mean, I would go to, there's the Swedenborg Foundation's YouTube channel, which we have, we have two. We have mine, which is off the left eye. But if you just go to, go to Swedenborg.com and then click on their, uh, their YouTube channel, um, there's a video that's called, or just search it, Who Was Swedenborg? What Should I Read? Uh, and that's with uh, Dr. Jonathan Rose, who's the series editor for the most recent translations of Swedenborg. And that does a good job of laying out sort of the the uh, basic flavor of each of his most popular books. It talks about Heaven and Hell, which is which is his best mo most popular best-selling book. Then you have his book True Christianity. Um, you have Secrets of Heaven, and I'll, they all sort of address different topics. Heaven and Hell is, a, is what it sounds like. It's a tour of the afterlife. You're getting to learn what heaven's like, not only what kinds of phenomena are there, people and communities, but, but what, what's the mindset of heaven? What makes heaven heaven? How do you get to heaven? And the same thing with hell and the world of spirits, which is in between. You have True Christianity, which was one of his last books and was a, sort of a response to the attacks he was getting from the Christian world. And so that's where he most clearly lays out his teachings in a theological sense. That this is this is sort of the canon of Swedenborg. Um, then you have Divine Love and Wisdom, which is 
one of his most philosophical sounding books. You'll get a few Bible references in there, but but mostly not. And that's that's the essential nature of God and and consequently of life. That's sort of the, from a philosophical standpoint. Divine Providence is his book on the problem of evil and how God runs the universe, essentially, and how God runs human lives. Secrets of Heaven or Arcana Celestia is his series of books that goes through the inner meaning of the Bible, which we, we haven't talked about much here, but is a, a whole topic on its own. Yeah. Um, so as you can see, there's a lot, Swedenborg covers so much ground that there, it really depends on what you're looking for, what you're interested in, and people can be interested in, in him for very different reasons. But I'd say, go Google, who was Swedenborg, what do I read, uh, and just watch that video, and that'll at least let you know where you could start. All right, that's fantastic. Well, thank you once again, Curtis, for joining us on the show. Uh, I, I know that there's so much left that we could talk about, and maybe we'll do that another time, but, uh, but, but thanks for your insight and your wisdom. Love to do that. Thanks for having me. All right. And uh, make sure you check out the Swedenborg Foundation at Swedenborg.com. Uh, Curtis's YouTube channel, at, uh, Off the Left Eye, is, the, is that YouTube channel. So go and check that out. There'll be links in the description. And uh, Jonathan, any, uh, any last-minute questions that you wanted to throw out? Or? Um, I, I think we, uh, we, we, got, we got a good intro to, to Swedenborg, so uh, yeah. I, I think we're good for tonight. But I, I just wanted to thank you, Curtis, because uh, I'm someone who's been interested in sort of Christian mysticism for a long time, and I, I've heard a lot about Swedenborg, and I've been sort of intimidated by his books. <laughs> so it was, uh, mm -hmm. it was you know, kind of really personally interesting for me to, to find out so much about this, this fascinating man and his insights. So I'm definitely going to have to fire up some more of your, uh, your webcasts. Absolutely. I appreciate you reaching out, and I hope I did it justice here. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, intimidating, but I would say worth it. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So then for everybody who is listening along at home, we will see you next week. This has been a production of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. For more information about this and all of GWN's programming, please visit GnosticWisdom.net. The opinions expressed in this show do not necessarily reflect the opinions of GWN, the Apostolic Joannite Church, or any other organization. This has been released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License and is brought to you by the generous support of our patrons. To support our programs and become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash g-n-o-s-t-i-c.